This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Live and Learn. I'm Chua Entek. Wayne Shaw, the 45-year-old part-time goalkeeper of Sutton United, made international headlines recently when television cameras caught him biting into a pie during his club's high-profile FA Cup match with Arsenal. Shaw was forced to resign two days later. But what did he do wrong? I have sports lawyers Richard Wee and Peter Douglas Ling with me to explain just that, as well as the larger issues of sports betting and match fixing. Richard, Peter, thank you for being here. Broadly speaking, under the law, what is match fixing? Hi, Antik. Uh, nice to be back in BFM. Well, match fixing generally, uh, I think in the Malaysian minds, will be someone uh, making sure the, the results of a particular sports game uh, will end in a particular way, uh, which normally will de- be consistent with the intent of the uh, betters and uh, uh, organizations, or illegal organizations behind the scene who want the match to end in a particular result. Uh, of course, uh, over the years, uh, match fixing has grown a lot wider than just making sure your team lose. Uh, there's issues like... Um, uh, how many times a person throw the ball in uh, in tennis how many p- times a player uh, hit the ball using a backhand uh, or who gets a yellow card first in a, in a in a hockey game um, all this uh, is within the realm of sports integrity uh, under the uh, uh, concept of sports law so under sports integrity uh, we have other issues like for example uh, FIFA's case against uh, Seb Blatter uh, Michael Platini. But today, uh, we will be focusing on uh, issues of match-fixing. I think the concept of throwing away a match is quite relatable to a lot of people. They know what it is. But how do you go about proving that someone is throwing away a match or intentionally trying to lose? Well, I'm going to try this first before I pass on uh, to Peter. Generally, in Malaysia, let's take Malaysia. Instead of speaking what's happening in Europe, most of the cases which involves in Malaysia but for example, in, in, in soccer, is because someone lodged a complaint or uh, there is some really odd results in a match or uh, a, a goalkeeper mysteriously missing a clear uh, catch uh, or a, a striker constantly missing uh, shots at goal. Uh, it doesn't take a scientist to realise that, that something is just not, not right. Uh, so that's the first layer. Uh, most of the time in match-fixing cases, uh, be it football, cricket, hockey, badminton, it's always someone lodging a complaint or uh, the match official or officials uh, would suspect something is not right. Basically. So then from there, investigations will take place and somebody may be suspended or sacked. Peter, there was a court case that established this rule that it's called the principle of strict liability. Maybe you can run us through that decision. The case um, of the Ukrainian football match between two clubs, FC Karpati and FC Metalist. The game ended 4-0 in favour of FC Metalist. One player scored an own goal and he was subsequently red-carded as well. So after rumours of match-fixing, the investigations took place. One player... Mr. A, who got the red card and uh, scored an own goal, got called up by his chairman and he revealed that he was given a bribe to throw the match. Now, his club that lost withheld that information and then tried to use that information against the player for some internal issues they had. But subsequently, the matter uh, went all the way up 
uh, firstly to CAS, Court of Arbitration of Sports, and both clubs were found guilty. When we talk about strict liability in this case, what it means is that the player uh, is guilty of obviously of throwing the match, but the club he played for was also found guilty. This is that nature of strict liability. The employer is found guilty of the act of the employee. And the interesting part was that, albeit everyone agrees that uh, there was a wrong here, then it turned it technical. They said, let's go further. We want to take this up to the Swiss um, Supreme Court and we want to challenge this part of the evidence. We want to say that uh, on, the, on the use of certain evidence, which they say was, uh, they did not realize they were actually, there was a conversation that was taped and that taped conversation, uh, they tried to throw it out and, uh, and said that the whole ruling was wrong because they used that tape uh, conversation. That was actually allowed eventually by the Supreme Court and they said that Cass uh, had dealt with the legal issues involved with the admissibility of that evidence correctly uh, and the uh, conviction stood. Why was this brought to the Swiss Supreme Court? I think the both clubs were unhappy with the decision. They, um, uh, Cass makes um, awards which normally is has the same uh, force of law as any judgment but with the general framework of the law in, involved, you also have the right to appeal. So uh, they felt that CAS had gotten it wrong on a few fronts, especially the admission of that tape recording, which they said they were you know, totally illegal. Um, and, and so they wanted to reverse the CAS findings. And it happens sometimes you do get CAS decisions reversed, but in this case, it was upheld. Was it because CAS is based in Geneva? Uh, no, actually, CAS is based in uh, Lausanne, uh, in Switzerland. So how how it works is that um, it's not because it's located in Switzerland that the laws of Switzerland automatically applies. But if you go to uh, and if you peruse the CAS rules, uh, it does uh, refer to Swiss laws first as the basis of their their decision making process. But uh, if the um, a sports case which comes to them refers to a constitution of a Korean association, then the cash arbitrators will always refer to that set of uh, constitution from that, for example, Korean association to decide. Um, uh, but they will use uh, Swiss principles, uh, legal principles to decide their cases. And that's why it's quite often you see uh, when... Uh, someone is aggrieved with the decision of CAS, uh, an appeal uh, is lodged at Switzerland, uh, not in their homeland. And at the risk of being too technical, uh, Peter, that tape, why was it admissible? Why was it not uh, deemed criminal to right. tape a conversation without consent? Um, my understanding is that the that CAS dealt with very technical uh, areas of law. We're talking about, um, certainly you're looking at whether it's entrapment, whether or not a particular piece of evidence ought to be allowed because um, really the, the, the party uh, had certain things recorded without their, against their will. But in this case, um, the, uh, I think the finding of the Swiss Supreme Court was that CAS dealt with all issues with, and even public policy issues correctly. And they felt that the overriding principle here was public policy. So even though it was obtained illegally, in that sense, uh, it was still allowed to get to the truth of the matter. Well, uh, if I can um, add on uh, to what Peter said, 
over and above uh, the usual concept of our fair play, fair fair trial, which we hear in our, or we read of in our daily papers and daily news. For sports law, is actually very different. The rules pertaining to doping and uh, match fixing, CAS takes an extremely strict approach against anybody suspected of doing this. The reasons and uh, the purpose is very simple. It is to extremely discourage anyone from getting involved. For example, if uh, there is a, a rule which say if you breach a traffic light and you'll, you'll be punished for 10 years in prison and your reason is irrelevant, you will see everyone, despite in utmost emergency, will not b- b- breach the red light traffic light. Um, so in this case, the strict liability principles is, is where, as Peter said, and if I can just add a layer to what he said, that uh, it also means your intent is irrelevant. Uh, so whether the recording was fair or uh, illegal, uh, two cares is that the fact that there was a match fixing, uh, even though the evidence you brought to us is technically illegal, um, I don't care. Uh, I, I will I will come down hard on you for fixing a match because the match fixing hurts the integrity of the sports, the image of sports, and um, and sponsors' money are, are affected. Uh, sponsors invest a lot of money in sports and match fixing will hurt that. That's why in sports, you see, it's a lot more different uh, in the way uh, they hear cases and decide cases. I want to move to this example in the London 2012 Olympics where eight badminton players were disqualified for intentionally trying to lose. I'm going to set up the case by playing this clip from um, the ABC network that uh, highlighted that case. London is also buzzing about badminton and the eight players expelled from the games not for doping but for losing on purpose in order to avoid stronger teams in the next round. This is the way the Chinese top seeds play, deliberately serving into the net again and again, eight times, despite a chorus of boos and a warning from officials. Then watch this, China lets it drop and South Korea follows up by serving it way outside the line. An Indonesian team followed suit by tanking, and the South Korean head coach admitted the Chinese started this, so we did the same. So after the players were disqualified, the Badminton World Federation spokesperson, Thomas Lund, came out and explained the decision, and this is what he had to say. And they came to the conclusion that they found that there was a breach of the player's code of contact, uh, not making best efforts, and they furthermore more found that it was to an extent that it was detrimental to our sport, which is clause 4.16 in our players' code of contact. And, and so it was seen as a, as a very serious case. And um, so there was a guilt found, plus that they then came to the conclusion that they, they only saw the outcome that they could disqualify the four pairs. The key line there is not using one's best effort to win. What do you think of that case? Well, that's, uh, to me, is an extremely good case uh, for, uh, to set the tone for the, the rules pertaining to integrity in sports. For a long time, really, there's been suspicion, especially in record games, uh, where certain countries or certain clubs will purposely lose a match uh, because, uh, let's say, in a badminton doubles pairing, they want to avoid the first seat. So the uh, third or fourth seed team try to lose the match, so they will play the second seed. 
Japan. Easier to win uh, with the perception. So anyway, in in the London Olympics in 2012, everything came out in the open uh, and it was hilarious if you watched the match. Uh, uh, world-class players trying to lose the match. So the decision there relates to fixing of match um, not for money. They didn't really lose because they, they were paid to lose. They purposely want to lose to avoid playing certain players. And unfortunately, the rules uh, didn't say that you can't do that. But uh, BWF, uh, of course, referred to another set of rules, which is very much uh, enshrined in all the uh, uh, sport, sports rules and, and, and constitution of badminton, and also all the other sports, is you must play your best. And uh, while the word play your best is very subjective, but in the case, clearly, by any standard, they were not playing the best. So, good decision. But it was not their fault, though. They were trying to win the medal and they're doing everything they can, their best efforts, maybe, some would argue, to win that medal, to avoid playing the top seats because of the round-robin format. Isn't something there to be admired about the players for doing everything they can <laughs> to get the in, yeah. to go into the gold medal match instead, instead of <laughs> you know so instead of trying to win the battle so lose the war. I guess what you're saying here is that they may not have been given giving their best efforts during that particular match, but they were giving their best efforts to win the entire tournament. Certainly, when when you have a format that allows for players, for example, in this case, both pairs had already uh, qualified. So it was a matter of trying to avoid a stronger pair or their compatriot in the next round. Uh, the format itself is an issue, you see. I think uh, the, the only way around it is to have, say, for example, another draw. So if it's a blind draw in the next round, you're going you're gonna to have to play your best. And if, for example, if you, um, the next round favours, uh, the draw in the next round favours players who played better in the round before. So if you've got a good score, you may be put in a different class of players, you may be separated from the better players, but at the same time you don't know who your opponents are. That could be the way around it. Uh, but certainly sports at its, um, at its core values is to play to win. Um, and it uh, really made a mockery of the badminton sport um, when we saw what happened in 2012. So the coach came out and said that um, the Chinese players started it and so the Koreans were forced to mimic that strategy. And they and, failed. And they failed, yeah, because <laughs> I guess elite players are not world-class actors. Yeah, they, they, they couldn't, they tried hard to lose, but they failed. <laughs> and so how come then they have to bear the brunt of the organizer's fault of setting up a flawed format? Because the reason why it happened was because in the other group, the top-seeded player lost to the Danish pair. And the, the Chinese pair, who were the top seed, lost unexpectedly, which threw everyone off. So instead of players trying to win and to top their group and play against the pair that finished in the second position in the other group, they would end up playing against the number one, in the group. number one seed. So basically, they wanted to finish second in the group. Correct, yeah. correct. Shouldn't the IOC or the, the organizer or the person who came up with the, the format be faulted instead of the players who were just trying to win? Well, they spent four years of their life dedicated, blood, sweat and tears. Well, uh, um, fair, fair question and fair comment, uh, but any person who organizes a tournament uh, will not take into account that players will want to lose in any tournament which, organize, which is organized. The organizers will always assume the players will play hard to win. Um, but yes, you're right. I think the BWF, uh, to some extent, uh, could have reviewed their, their format better. And they did better in Rio 
uh, the format was changed. And if I can add, even uh, the FIFA World Cup also saw some changes. So the recent World Cup, uh, even certain teams which finish uh, third in the table can still qualify through a knockout uh, uh, contest, which was excellent because it made every single match up to the very last match still relevant. So if a, na a national team lost uh, two consecutive games and going into the third game, there is still a possibility that team may qualify to the knockout competition if they win. Yeah. So that made everyone play really hard and really well. So yes, to, to some extent, the format may affect the way a player play. But um, in my view, in the sports rules, uh, every player, team or coach, etc., you have to go into a match with the intent to win, yeah. not with the intent to lose. You, it defeats the whole idea of playing games. Because I remember watching it at the time and I, it was very cringeworthy seeing them <laughs> Indeed, yeah. intentionally serving into yeah. the net. But looking back today at the YouTube clips in preparation for this show, I find it quite admirable that they were able to, you know, bear through the, the boos, the howling. <laughs> the, the referee came on the court once and warned them, but they still they persisted in the second match. I don't know, maybe it's their own intention. Maybe it was the coach's instruction. They carried out what they thought was the best thing to do. And they didn't relent. Well, I, <laughs> but, I, 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 I don't intend. I don't mean to be uh, to target uh, the Chinese national team, but I'm, it was very clear that it was uh, the instructions of the coach. And as you know, in the Chinese uh, badminton team, the coach's instruction is very, very, it's uh, uh, <laughs> very, very, it's very ferocious, and you must follow. So I think that's what happened there on that day. At the heart of this is the the behavior, sportsman-like behavior, right? Whether or not they are acting uh, with integrity with the sports. And in a sim somewhat similar vein, when you're trying to win a game in, in football, people would uh, waste time in the dying minutes of the game to preserve a draw or to protect a lead. Why is that not considered unsportsmanlike? Oh, uh, before Peter answers that, mm -hmm. that's why in football and even hockey, if you delay, the referee actually has the discretion to meet out a yellow card. And sometimes even red card. So classic one is a goalkeeper in a football match taking a long time to take a goal kick. So even in soccer and, and hockey, they have rules which allows the empire or referee to issue out certain punishment to ensure the fair play is, is done and the other team don't, don't waste time. So it, it's, it's, it's there. Yeah. To um, also answer that, uh, why is it not seen as more serious uh, uh, like match fixing? It's because the officials can give you immediate uh, penalties during the match. If you time waste, either, as Richard said, you get a card or the referee could add on time, like injury time. And the more injury time you have, the harder it is uh, for the team that wants to delay. Uh, so I think in, uh, because the officials are still in charge and able to punish immediately, that's the reason why I think it's not seen as harsh as, say, match fixing. What about a coach decision to feel a, a weakened team or his, his backup players for a match? My view is that um, a lot of teams who are involved in many competitions at one, at one time, they generally do have limited resources. And the other problem is this, the players um, over a course of a season, when you get um, some players who are not playing so well or injured and all that, there is no cho no choice but to rotate. But the accusations come back that, okay, you fielded a, a weakened team on purpose, you know, you've let down the, the spectators, uh, that's also throwing a match, right? 
But again, I think the answer to that is there is immediate repercussions to the team itself. For example, the main team is rested. You let your weakened team play. And then the following week when the main team comes back after one week off, they can come back rusty and uh, they may not have that match sharpness. There could be immediate repercussions on the main team coming back in after one week's rest. So I think it's a gamble uh, and a gamble by the coach and the management whether to field a weakened team or not. But it does happen, we see that. Yeah, yeah but that's more an internal debate, right, on whether that's the best use of resources. But under the eye of the law, another example I can think of is towards the end of the season when a team with nothing to play for is playing against someone who is chasing after the title or trying to avoid relegation. Yes. And the team with nothing to play for chooses instead to give their main players or first team players or just because there's nothing left to play for and they can afford to do so. Isn't that unsportsmanlike as well? Isn't the integrity there uh, lacking as well? Uh, it's it's um, possible. Uh, in the, I, I assume you are referring to football in particular. Yep. Uh, there are rules in the English FA pertaining to uh, putting on your best team. It's there. In, even in our local FAM, uh, there are rules on that. Um, it's quite difficult to, of course, uh, enforce and and uh, litigate upon. But uh, number one, the rules are there, and number two, uh, the managers, um, in especially in the Premier League, they're not silly. They will never play an 11 group of players which are absolute reserves. They'll never do that. Uh, they will always have three, four, or even up to six fairly normal first team players and then and on some youth and young players. And uh, also, specifically on the English FA, um, they, the, the clubs are encouraged to put in young players. So having young players coming in is not necessarily a bad thing, especially when you have nothing to play for anymore. Uh, but having said that, I'd like to comment that most of the time in English matches, it's very rare to see teams playing because they don't care. Uh, in fact, it's the other way around. I, I notice whenever they have nothing to lose, they tend to play harder. Um, but anyway, uh, in the rules, yes, such rules exist and it can be applied. And so if a piece of evidence come up maybe 10 years after the fact that uh, someone threw a match, how how far back can you can you go and bring back that case to uh, take it to court? Is, is there a limitation to how long it has to happen before the evidence expires? The answer is no. There's no limitation. Uh, any case of match fixing, which uh, obviously has criminal elements to it, there is no statute of limitation. You can bring up a case as old as, say, 20, 30 years, um, and all evidence related to it is admissible. Uh, a more recent example is the FA Cup fifth round match between Sutton and Arsenal. It involves their part-time goalkeeper. Uh, here's a clip of that action being caught on camera. There is Wayne Shaw, right on cue, and not content with being in the bar at half-time, he's now munching a pie. <laughs> Don't even believe he was ever coming on the pitch, do you? And his other role is as administrator of this 3G pitch. He takes the bookings. And, um, oh, oh, that's the best replay of the night. Is that allowed? Oh, you can't stop him. He deserves man of the match for that. Never come between a big man and his pie. <laughs> uh, is that allowed? That's the commentator's question. So what did that goalkeeper do wrong? 
Well, he ate a pie. <laughs> during... Is that not allowed? <laughs> <laughs> he ate a pie during his uh, football match. Um, and he said that, uh, oh, I ate the pie only because I knew I was no longer going on the field. All three substitutes were put in. I was going to be an unused substitute, so nothing wrong. Um, and he's a big dude. He's 322 pounds, I understand, and uh, uh, the biggest football player in England and all that. So exactly what did he do wrong? Now, the background to it was that um, there was a, a online sports betting company um, I think the name of the company is Sunbet. They had put a what we call a novelty uh, bet uh, or a bet for the novelty market that he would actually munch on a pie during the match. And Sunbets actually uh, do sponsor his team. And so what he's done is he's brought his team and the game into disrepute because, I mean, clearly you have you're too close to this uh, betting company uh, whom you knew, actually, he admitted, he said and he knew about it. He knew that there was a bet and he even admitted that a, friend, a few of his friends placed bets on him uh, doing it. So I think um, immediately the FA of England took uh, action. The, um, they've got a betting commission that also is also investigating into the matter. Uh, investigations are not complete yet, but he had to resign because... The, of the uh, whole pressure put on him by the club. Uh, apparently, he cried when he resigned and all that. But um, look, um, what he did was not right in my eyes. You can't, you can't do that. Yeah. If what I can add on, sure. sorry. Um, the the uh, so Peter have set up the tone for that case. Uh, the even bigger picture is this: um, the UEFA, the tennis, uh, cricket. All this organization, they have in place an in-depth anti-betting um, system. Uh, for example, tennis player. So I, I'm a world number one player, and my brother or my say my best friend, uh, Peter Ling. The, the the system knows that Peter Douglasing is my best friend, and Peter goes to Estonia and put a bet of a thousand pounds that I will lose the next match, and I lose. Uh, and the system will actually pick it up. Uh, uh, anyway, in in Europe, uh, betting online is legal, so we, you can actually know who uh, who bet on it, who. So that system uh, allows the organization, the sports organizations, to detect who bet on what, and if the the organization feel that the betting may affect the result or even influence the mind of the player in the, uh, while playing that game. Uh, that player may get into trouble. So in this case, while he didn't play, he uh, just ate a pie. But the fact is, if he could have eaten a pie knowing that there's a bet on him to eat a pie, the question to us is, what about the rest of his teammate? Because there was so much bet that they will lose the game. There was so bet that they will take Arsenal to uh, replay. You know, and there was also a bet of how many times the corner kick will be taken. So then everything becomes suspicious. The whole teammate, what he did cause his entire teammate to be tainted with suspicion. I don't think he realised that. So that's why, for example, in, in the English football and the European football, the players are asked to be to, to, to declare to UEFA who are your family members, who are your close friends, so that they keep and track on them. Is, is that serious? So if you are an athlete, you have a responsibility to declare who your friends are, who you hang out with, who you eat uh, dinner well, with? 
not to that extent, but uh, uh, of course, the associations like tennis players, they, they have to share who are the family members. Um, but um, uh, in tennis, for example, there's this organization called the Tennis Integrity Unit, TIU. So TIU keep an, keep an eye on the players, on who their friends are. So, you know, if you peruse the players' Instagram account, Twitter account, Facebook account, you can figure out more or less who are their players. Uh, it's not a, a, a scientific pr uh, evidence on, uh, okay, Richard's friend is uh, Mr. Chong, so I must follow Mr. Chong all the time. Uh, the, 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 the whole system looks at uh, who he, the player hangs out with, spend time with, you know. Um, so the moment there's some kind of suspicion, back to what we said, I think, earlier in the interview, about half an hour ago about about uh, uh, strict liability. So there you go. Because there is some suspicion, the organisation can come after you and ask you, what is this about? So then the, the burden falls on the player and say, no, 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 I didn't purposely lose the match even though by coincidence my friend bet on me. So it basically makes the player or the team uh, train themselves to never ever get involved in, in bribery or fixing. So in Wayne Shaw's case, if his team wasn't sponsored by the betting company and if he didn't know and this crazy one in a, one in a million coincident, co coincident uh, happened, would he still be um, subject to such investigations? No, I don't think so. Um, I think the um, FA and the FA and the betting commission took action because of his immediate comments after the match which showed he knew exactly um, that there was such a bet on him doing that. So that's, I think, the, the primary, primary reason why they took action. Yeah. And it's, hard, it's even harder to prove than match-fixing, like this thing called, uh, you, you call it novelty betting, I think it's called sport-fixing sport fixing, as yes. well. And so betting companies can make any kind of scenario for, for someone to put money on. Is it harder to, to prove cases like this compared to match-fixing? Does the principle of strict liabilities to apply? Well, sport fixing by its nature is probably harder to identify during a, uh, during a match, especially when you can have uh, a very fast-paced match. Um, say, uh, for example, in cricket uh, 2020, it's a very fast-paced game and you have action, it's action-packed all the way. So uh, players could do odd things during the match and it's just harder to uh, pick out. Again, um, I th I'm un as I understand it, the authorities actually keep data of all that happens and then they check the betting, um, uh, the background, whether or not there's a spike in betting on a certain thing and then uh, they can investigate. So bets like this, uh, it happens all over the world. How do you regulate it then? Because I understand from Richard, this is unregulated in Asia. Well, of course, yeah, betting, as you know, in Malaysia, uh, particularly in Malaysia, we... Uh, it's it's basically illegal. Uh, it's an underground uh, activity, even though we know it's happening. But in in Europe and America, uh, betting for sports is is uh, legal, so we you can actually check on it. So to answer your question, uh, how do you detect? For example, uh, what we understand is that uh, UEFA has a particular software which uh, detect uh, online betting. Uh, they see, uh, they will see the conduct, the character, the reaction. Uh, they will study the uh, betting behaviors, and, uh, and that's how they they track down a certain activity. And to answer your question, and take from as far as uh, we are aware, there is no reported case yet 
at the Court of Arbitration for Sports Cares for sport fixing. We have not come across yet. Uh, and I think it's simply the answer actually lies in your very question, which is how do you catch someone like that? You know, so uh, it will be interesting to see how this develop uh, because sport fixing is actually quite rampant. First yellow card within five minutes, you know, and then some players, you can see in some football matches, some players very rash within three minutes, he gets a yellow card. You wonder why? So early in the match. Uh, then if you track the behaviour of the uh, uh, betting, hey, there's a bet against him, <laughs> on him to get a yellow card in five minutes. So there you go. I suspect it's easier for a player in a, playing an individual sport to indulge in behaviours like this rather than a team sport. So f if you are working in a place like the Tennis Integrity Unit, um, besides checking the Instagrams, besides checking their... What else can you do and is everyone, you mentioned U, uh, UFR, you mentioned uh, tennis and cricket as well. Is every sport, uh, sporting federation or governing body modelling their policing unit on TIU? Okay, let's take TIU first for instance. Um, every time there is a match, uh, there will be some officials at the match. And we're not talking about the Grand Slams. We're talking about the satellite tournaments involving player number 150 against player number 170. Uh, in some tournament in small town. So there will be uh, uh, officers there keeping an eye on the match. And the moment the officer feels that the match has been fixed, a report will be made. Um, that at that same time, uh, somebody somewhere in TIU, I'm not, I'm not sure where their, their base is, uh, I, I'm talking about their internet base, they will study the online betting behaviour. So there's a second layer of, of check. And uh, the third layer is actually the officers in TIU always keep an eye. They always uh, chit-chat, dialogue, meet up with the players. So they actually know the players, you know. Uh, they roughly know who, 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 who the players' friends are. And, you know, tennis players, uh, for example, tennis, eh, they don't have six million friends. They probably have like five friends who, who spend time with them all the time. They're always on the road. Uh, a, a professional tennis player, they work hard. They have to play every week to earn money. Uh, especially those who are not in the top 10, top 20. So they don't have much time for friends if you study the, the life of a professional tennis player. Now, your question was whether other association model that. The answer is yes. Uh, cricket has something similar, especially after the uh, uh, scandal, uh, I think about 5, 10 years ago. Uh, football, of course, you know, it's, it's uh, UEFA is very strict about this. Uh, FIFA is very strict about this. Um, and, um, and so is badminton and we saw in 2012 what badminton did you know so yes TIU is very much uh, uh, similar in other sports too so I guess my final question would be in trying to maintain this uh, maintain sports integrity right in Malaysia and many countries around the world if you're not the elite athlete you often don't make um, big money and so people turn to bookmakers and turn to these avenues to make a living because either their clubs are not paying them or they have no legal avenue to challenge their club or they can't afford the legal fees to uh, secure a lawyer to go and fight for their unpaid salaries. So what would you say in a Malaysian context if a player feels that they are getting shortchanged? and um, they yeah. have a dilemma in maintaining uh, the integrity of the sports versus trying to make a decent living, what would your yeah. advice be? I think first and foremost, the modest operandi of most of these fixes 
uh, exactly that. They target the ones who are poorer, um, who are who are from say for not just poorer but also from poorer countries. So the international fixes will go after commonly poorer nations like those from Africa or even Eastern Europe. And yes, because some of these players either earn very little or sometimes you hear stories about uh, players not being paid at all for months, they then need the money. They need to survive. They've got mouths to feed at home. They've got their wives, their kids. So it's very tempting to take 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, yeah? and, um, uh, then, and that's just with the enticement of money. Sometimes um, the um, elements of um, coming in that come in include like, look, if you don't take it, it will harm your family. And what choice have you got then? You know, so it makes taking the, the money easier. What can the authorities do about it? I guess, um, especially in the local context, I would hope that the, um, the police and other authorities uh, take all reports seriously. Um, there, you know, almost on a monthly basis, we hear some story in the papers, if not even more frequent than that. And um, uh, until and unless all the stakeholders actually take a very serious approach and take the players' welfare and concerns uh, seriously when it comes to this, um, um, I mean, players will always be susceptible, especially the poorer ones. Yeah, because so Cass does not uh, care about the the backstory, the context, yes. right? So yeah, that yes. makes it even more challenging. Even more challenging. Yes. But, you know, um, to um, to give uh, some other views also, uh, I fully, absolutely agree with Peter that that's the biggest challenge. Uh, but one of the things um, most sports organisations try to do, especially the popular sports, there's always sports which is not very popular where there's not much money in the sports in any event. And eventually, market forces will decide that uh, people don't get involved in those sports. So, like Kabaddi, you know, or uh, Wushu. Very few people take part in the sports professionally. Uh, then you have the, the not-so-poor, not-so-rich sports like, uh, like squash. You know, uh, the number one player for squash probably earn less than the, the top number 50 player in tennis. So, but what most organisations try to do now, if you notice, is they try to bring in as much investors as possible. And they invest in paying the player even when you play only the round one. Uh, they get money for that. Uh, and uh, tennis, for example, uh, uh, even badminton, they have uh, academies where any player, number 50, number 80, can sign on and come and train. So they, they help you for your training, they help you with your nutrition, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's always seminars, advice given by associations. In, and I'm, I'm talking about Malaysian context, for example. So there are attempts by the fairly wealthy associations to help even they're not so top players uh, to ensure that they stay away from corruption and match fixing. But at the end of the day, actually, it boils down to the player. Uh, we can put all kinds of rules and, and all kinds of deterrents, but you know the key is to try and, and train the player when they are young that, look, this is not the way forward. You, you don't do this in sports. Um, and and you know, hopefully one day it will work. You know? uh, to be fair, I think most of our athletes in Malaysia, they play to win. Uh, they're all most of them are honest, hardworking players who want to win. And if they don't make it, they retire and they'll do something else. But there's always some bad apples, uh, you know. So we'll try to deal with that bad apples accordingly. Richard, Peter, 
Thank you very much for coming today. Hey, thanks, thanks for and taking thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.